Campbell is one of our Story Quest students. What is your major again? Psychology and business. business. Okay. And he's going to start the interview. Sam is Spanish and English. Okay. And um, we actually spent the morning looking at some of the fiction books that you wrote. Oh, cool. So that was fun. And Sam's going to um, join into the interview when Michael's done with his pitch. So, guys while we while it happens right. for positive no stories. pressure no pressure <laughs> would you like some water or um water might be good okay. thanks i'm gonna hold this like right down below here you sure. talk right over the top of yeah it, okay don't worry about your arms I'll i'm cool sure yeah hit. yes if you hit it a few yeah. times mm -hmm. like this, I'm, i've worked with mics before we met before it's possible your face is familiar yeah, yeah. Um, I work with Nona and do the oral history teaching and history yeah. program. Well, you, you may have seen me around town a fair right. amount, and you know, being a local, as it yeah, were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I, that's one of the preset buttons on my okay, radio. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not. I, I tend to be sleeping late on Sunday mornings that's when I get the chance. Yeah, but, but yeah, that's one of my favorite stations. No, I probably have heard your name. Yeah. There you go. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, I hope some of them made sense. Yeah. I write essays for the Capitol. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I've seen some of your stuff. Yeah. 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 Writing about music, I think, is one of the hardest things to do in a way that makes sense to somebody that knows what you're talking about. I'm yeah, I'm trying to call the great people to come to shows rather than critique, you know, mm -hmm. do nothing. You have to talk about it before they have a chance to yeah. make up mm -hmm. their own mind. So it's tough for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll put this down here, okay? Yeah. Michael's going to start out um, and have you introduce yourself. And we'll go from there, just have a regular conversation. Okay. Right. I am Peter Heck. Uh, I'm a Chestertown native, born in what was then Kenton Queen Anne's Hospital uh, in 1941. Uh, my mother was a Kent County native. My father, uh, was a Baltimore boy who came here to Washington College and after he graduated uh, liked it so much they ended up coming back and marrying my mother. And Preston Patterson Heck. When did he go to college here? He graduated in 1923. Okay. And uh, same class as my mother. And he came back to practice law here. Uh, he was an attorney, had an office over on Court Street, where my brother is now practicing law out of the same office. Uh, some Court Street, said, Court Street is Lawyers Row is the other name for it. It's right past the right past Sam Hall, the big the clock tower is, is is where Court Street is. And he had an office along there. If you walk down that street, you'll see an office with the name Samuel L. Heck on it, and that's my brother, and that was my father's office. 
Over the years, that's one of the places that's been a lawyer's. And there's also, also had a lot of tradesmen shops back in the 19th century. Uh, at one point, somebody came from, I believe, the Maryland Historic Society uh, to talk to my brother and said that they believed that at the time it might be the oldest continuous law office in the state of Maryland. And my brother had to disillusion him because for a couple of years uh, between when my father died and my brother passed the bar, it was an insurance office. So, so we lost that distinction by renting it out. But it was. Uh, what type of things did you do when you were a kid growing up? And when I was a kid growing up? Yeah. Oh, we played a lot of uh, back lot baseball and football. Uh, or with however many lo local kids were uh, were available for that game, we did got into a lot of mischief. I remember uh, prowling down by the riverside and. Uh, hopping on trains, train cars over, yeah, there was a railroad track over about, I, I grew up on Queen Street, uh, two, two houses from the corner of Cannon. Uh, and there was a railroad yard down there at the time. So we'd go out and we'd climb up on the train cars. Uh, there was behind our house uh, on what is now the lawn of the White Swan Tavern was a tractor dealer's lot, a, a farm equipment dealer. So we'd go up there and climb all over the farm equipment. One of the great thrills of our youth was when one of the local kids got one of the tractors started. And, you know, but we used to play that the tractors were tanks or rocket ships or whatever we were into at that particular time. We got into a little bit of trouble, although my brother was the one that got in more trouble than I did. I, I was the first son, so I was, the, I was the responsible one. I was the one who was expected to be the good kid. I got in trouble too, but you know, uh, my brother was the one that got in more trouble. You know, How much younger is your brother than you? He's three and a half years younger. So, where did you go to school? I went to public schools in Chestertown, Chestertown Elementary School, which was 400 High Street, the building that is now the Kent County Government Offices. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Chestertown High School, which is what is now Kent County Middle School. Uh, and by the time when I was when I went to elementary school, I was still living on Queen Street. Uh, by the time I got to high school which was then from seventh to 12th grades. Uh, we had moved to Washington Avenue, so I had a shorter walk to, uh, to the high school then. And we, we walked to school almost every day. It was uh, one of the things about growing up around here. How many were you in high school? My graduating class was 59. Uh, so I, easy to remember because it was the class of 59 and we had 59, so everybody made a big deal of that in the yearbook. And, uh, it was a segregated school at that time. Uh, Garnett was then uh, the elementary and high school for the black students in the county. And Chestertown uh, High School was an all-white school. Did you have any interactions with the Garnett students? Very little. Um, there were several that were sort of uh, kids that I knew because I'd grown up two houses away from Cannon Street, which was at that time in uh, Chestertown, uh, largely a black neighborhood. So I knew a lot of them by sight. Uh, we, uh, when I was, my mother used to tell this story, when I was probably six or seven years old, uh, my father got a swing set to put up in our front yard. And I, 
And all the neighborhood kids came by and said, ma'am, can we get on that? And then everybody got on it. You know, I mean, all the kids from the neighborhood, black and white, and we were having a great time. And about five o'clock, my mother came out and said, okay, time for everybody to go home. And uh, I don't think she meant anything by it, but the, but the kids from Cannon Street took it as, okay, that's all we can, we, that's all we can play on it. And they, they never came back. Which you didn't have a lot of we did not have a lot of interaction. Uh, you know, I, I I knew the kids because we'd pass them on the street and we'd say hi and stuff. But we didn't we didn't play together. Uh, once in a while, some of them would show up for the back lot baseball games, and I remember being really really annoyed because we we didn't have enough guys to make a full team on either side. We ended up. Uh, one time playing a bunch of the kids from the black neighborhood and there were four of us and three of them. So you can imagine the outfield was sort of unpopulated. So if a right-handed hitter came up, you got it, you put your one outfielder in left field. And if a left-handed hitter came up, you put your one outfielder in right field. And one of the kids on the other team, one of the black kids, could hit the, hit to the opposite field, which we had never seen. Everybody was expected to pull the ball back then and nobody ever heard of hitting the wrong field when you were 13 years old. And so I'm out in right field, and this kid's up batting left-handed, and he pops the ball right down the left field line. I've got to run about 800 feet to catch the ball. And of course, he's around the bases by the time I catch up with it. And so the next time he came up, I went over to right, went over to left field, and of course he hit it down the right field line. <laughs> Two of the easiest hit home runs that were ever hit in baseball. And we were really, we tried. To say, you aren't allowed to do that. You're supposed to hit the ball where the guys play it. And why? <laughs> so what was your understanding? Uh, it was not like further south in that there it wasn't things like signs up saying white only or that kind of thing. Ne never saw that until uh, much later. I think the first time I saw that was when I was probably about 17. And uh, we took our first trip uh, to the south of Maryland. We'd taken a lot of trips to the north to places like you know, New York State, uh, so forth and so on. We'd never taken any trips to the South. And the first time I went to Virginia, I was looking at colleges, and one of the colleges I was looking at was Washington and Lee. And the first trip down there is the first time I ever saw a white-only sign on anything. Uh, they didn't have that around. It was more, it was a little bit more genteel uh, society. So you know, were you surprised when you saw that sign? I was sort of, I, I was shocked. I'd heard about such things. I'd, I had never seen such a thing. Um, things were uh, unspoken. Uh, nobody went around uh, making a big deal of it, but you didn't see, uh, you didn't see black people coming into restaurants. Uh, on the other hand, I was probably in some ways exposed to a little bit more black culture than a lot of people. My father was, among other things, the lawyer for Jane's Church. And in fact, Armand Fletcher reminds me every once in a while that my father signed the mortgage for them back when they got their mortgage redone when they were doing some work. So, my, so we would go to the church suppers at Jane's Church. That was an interesting experience in a way because you know, the, the food was a little bit different from what we were used to. Uh, How so? Uh, it was, my mother tended to cook sort of uh, very, lay dinners out very formally. Uh, and she did so even right up to her uh, through her last year, she would have a, have a very formal table setting. People sat in the same place all the time. Everybody had a 
designated place at the table, and it was a very ritualized kind of meal in a way. And it was much more casual at the church. Uh, they did fried chicken differently than from my, mo from my mother. And uh, they did other things that I hadn't seen before uh, anywhere near as much. I forget, what, well, they had cornbread of a type that I'd never seen before. And, uh, and of course, my father you know, sort of was somebody that was sort of uh, a respected figure in that community because he'd done things for them. Uh, and a lot of his business was from the black community. I think he took on a lot of indigent clients that he never expected to get paid by. So the, so the separation kind of broke down when it came to a business opportunity. The separation broke down in, in business things. Uh, and certainly, you know, uh, a lot of businessmen, I'm sure, then as any other time, the only color they cared about was the color of money. Uh, and uh, my father, I think my father was aware, probably from having grown up in Baltimore City, uh, I was a little bit more aware that, uh, of the problems that were faced by a minority community. Uh, he, I know he took a lot of engine clients it was a very common occurrence uh, late night on weekends for us to get a call. Uh, I'd pick up the phone, and lawyer heck there, in a, an obviously black voice. And it would be somebody that had gotten arrested for uh, usually gambling, which meant shooting dice behind the Uptown Club for the most part. And it, I, at a fairly young age, became aware that you know these people were being hassled by the police for probably probably shooting dice for quarters and 50 cents, where people were playing gin rummy at the country club for 10 times that amount, and nobody was coming out and hassling them for gambling. So I, I became aware of that, certainly at a fairly early are age. There, are there any cases you remember particularly? I don't remember specifics. My father didn't talk a lot about his practice when he came back home. He sort of made it a point not to, not to involve us in stuff. Uh, so every once in a while, something would come out, and I'd be surprised to find out about that. I remember one time, he was he was interviewed by somebody on the radio when we'd gone to New York, and mentioned that he was a lawyer. And the uh, the interviewer said, "Have you had what's the most interesting case you had?" And he said, "Well, I had a murder case once." And I said, "I never heard about that." Um, what did you do after high school? After high school, I went to college. I went to Harvard. And uh, that was the first place, actually, that I had a close black friend. We happened to s he sat down next to me in my freshman, one of my, my freshman science course, which happened to be astronomy. And uh, he said something funny, and I laughed. I made some funny, funny comment back, and we became close friends. It turned out we lived in the same dorm, and we became, became very close friends for that year. What was his name? Travis Williams. You know Travis went on to do? Uh, Travis died early. He died about three years after college. He'd been, he'd had some sort of illness in college that it was something, some bone illness. I don't know. I never got the details, but he passed away uh, about three years after graduation. So uh, he never really. I mean, I was always sort of sorry about that because that's somebody that I would really have loved to keep in touch with. Yeah. Uh, Did you have some sense of like uh, when you got to Harvard that? Things were different, and that you were thankful, or you were there was any relief, or it was just something that you just took in stride. It was way different, uh, you know. 
uh, going to a going to a Chestertown High School really doesn't prepare you for going to an elite college where everybody there was either their high school valedictorian or close to, you know, or would have been high school valedictorian if they'd been in your school. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I met a, there must have been one of my roommates had gone to going to a school in New York, and all his friends were from Bronx Science, which yeah. Bronx High School of Science, which is the elite technical school in New York. I mean, the guys that go there go on to become Nobel Prize winners in physics. Uh, and these guys came in. I played a little bit of chess, for example, and uh, Freddie's friends came in, and they were playing chess, and they were talking about having played with Bobby Fischer when he was a kid. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> Bobby Fischer was the world chess champion in 1963, the first American world chess champion. Uh, and he, he was one of these guys who was uh, a master at age 12. Uh, it's not uncommon these days, but back then it was totally unheard of. So Bobby Fischer became world champion, I think around 1972 or so. And here were guys that had played Bobby Fischer and had beat him when he was 12 years old. <laughs> and I'm, so, so you know, that's just an example of the kind of uh, atmosphere I found myself in. Uh, some of these guys were very outspoken, very abrasive, and I quickly got an, an education on a lot of, um, well, what when I was a kid I would have considered very radical political ideas, and I moved very rapidly uh, toward accepting those ideas. So you think your high school helped you prepare for Harvard at all? It did, but, but there was a lot of adjustment. And one of the things I, I remember very, uh, you know, with a great deal of fondness was that some of the professors made it a point to take me out to lunch and talk about the things that I needed to work on. They, it was a very personal relationship. It, there was nothing impersonal about the school. But several professors took me out and said, look, you know, reading your last paper, there are a couple of things that I, I realize you're not thinking about. And this is the kind of thing you need to think about. In English class, in uh, history class, things like that. Uh, people tried to take care of me, but at the same time, I was getting, you know, I think at every college, you get as much education out of the classroom as you do in. And some of the guys that my, uh, that I was meeting in my freshman dorm, one of them went on to become one of the founders of Students for a Democratic Society, which was a major radical group in the 1960s. They weren't the ones uh, that were doing the some of them were. There were a couple of them that came down here uh, and did community organizing uh, in the From late the 60s. Yeah, eventually ended up in that. Uh, one of them wrote articles for the Harvard Crimson that are still available online about uh, the desegregation process in Kent County. Uh, so I knew some of those guys up there. It was, it, was, it, it was a real difference from the way I was brought up, as you can well imagine. So it changed, it changed a lot of my perspectives on things. And this was 1960? I graduated from Harvard in 1963. Six, um, 60, 61 to 63 is when a lot of this stuff was really fermenting. 61 was the Freedom Riders that were holding on to Yeah. Yeah. What did your parents say to the some of my friends at home were sort of uh, appalled. Uh, one of them I'm still in touch with. He was, one, he was probably my, one of my two or three best friends in high school. Uh, and he, 
he's one of these guys that still flies a Confederate flag. He moved down to Virginia, flies a Confederate flag on his truck, and we take pot shots at each other every now and then on Facebook. And just, uh, you know, and you know, we had enough background in common so that we can still carry on a civilized conversation, but we we're at total opposite ends of the pole in terms of political beliefs and social when beliefs. When you say that it became radicalized, can you give us a sense of from where you started to where you would consider you ended up? Okay. Um, um, where I started, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, I started as a kid that had gone to an all-white school mm -hmm. who, who had very few uh, the people I knew of other color and of other uh, national origins were all people that were in, uh, well, for example, uh, when my parents would throw a party, they had a black couple that would come in and cook for the party. They were in a subservient position. They were employees. Uh, I knew their son. He was a, you know, he was a couple years younger than me, and every once in a while we would give, you know, if I had hand-me-down clothing that I outgrown, my parents would give it to them for him. Uh, you know, we would carry on conversations every now and when, when Dina would be there cleaning or something, I'd go out in the kitchen and we'd talk about this or that, you know, but just for very casual conversation. Uh, and as an example of where I'd gotten to, my brother graduated from high school four years after me. And he was giving one of the speeches at graduation and was had a theme for his speech, which was uh, courage and going against the expectations. And he was trying to come up with examples to, of people like that. And uh, my parents said, well, you can help him. Give him a couple of ideas as to people that display courage. And, I said, and you know, I'm sort of, and well, let him write his own speech and so forth and so on. I wrote my own speech. <laughs> And finally, I kept pushing me. I said, well, how about the Freedom Riders? And my parents were appalled. Uh, partly because my father had been very much involved in uh, helping the downtown businesses desegregate after the Freedom Riders came to Chestertown. He was one of the heads of the committee that jawboned the local business and said, look, you've got to you've got to end this or we're going to end up on the front page of the New York Times and we don't want that. So he went around to the local restaurants and said, you've got to start, uh, you know, start being open to everybody. Uh, and there were only a couple of them that, were, that sort of resisted. One of them was uh, Bud Hubbard, who ran the restaurant where there were the major confrontations. By the way, when the Peter yeah, probably for Wilbur Hubbard, yes, who was no relation as far as we know. Bud Hubbard was a, Bud Hubbard was a character. And my father used to patronize his place, so he was able to talk to him in a way. And I, you know, I, I ran across Bud was a real. Uh, I guess the only name, the only word for it is a real redneck. Uh, yeah, Bud was a. He he ran a restaurant and bar, and he was. He, he catered to everybody that, uh, everybody that was white, basically, he was open to. He would, uh, and there were a lot of stories about him. My father and one of his lawyer friends, Parks Raisin, about whom you will hear something if you're uh, ever around 
Chestertown much. Parks Raisin's son, Alex Raisin, is also a lawyer in town and was one of the county commissioners for a while. Uh, but Parks and my father had offices next door to each other. And when one of them gave a party, they would put the ice and the cold beer in the alley between the two, and the other would go out and get it. So they were that kind of friends. They'd go out drinking to Bud Hubbard's. Uh, the story my father told about Bud Hubbard that in some ways sort of characterizes Bud is Bud's trip to Paris. He knew somebody in the Air Force. One of his wives was in the Air Force. And he said, hey, Bud, we're going to fly over to France next week. How would you like to hitch a ride? Bud said, yeah, that sounds good. And so Bud got on the plane with a case of beer, which he proceeded to drink, got to Paris, was passed out the entire time. They flew him back and ever afterwards say, yeah, I've been to Paris. <laughs> that was it? <laughs> His entire trip to Paris, he was passed out. <laughs> but um, was it, so, so it was just understood that um, that was kind of the way first you started. So what was the layout in the town in terms of being, you know, you could go to some places or you wouldn't? Um, you could go any place, but a lot of the restaurants were basically, uh, you'd get something to take out if you were black. Uh, uh, there was a pizza place, uh, Lombardo's, which was about where um, the, blanking on the name of it, um, the Irish bar, O'Connor's mm -hmm. is now. That, there's John Lombardo's pizza place was there. and. John Lombardo was, was more open than a lot of people because he'd moved here from New Jersey, where it was a much less structured society. And, and Johnny, you know, he, he would basically serve anybody. No, no big problem for him. Uh, there was a restaurant downtown roughly where uh, the, where the hair salon on High Street is, the one right next to what used to be the complete bookseller that's now the, um, Historic Society building. There was a, that was owned by the Kellises, and that was basically your standard Greek diner. Uh, everything from, you know, everything from breakfast to full course dinners. And uh, let's see, there was a there was a small restaurant in what was at the time the Voschel House Hotel, which sat on the corner where People's Bank is now, the corner of High and uh, Spring Street. They had a small restaurant. What about Chinese? Was there Chinese restaurant? No Chinese at the time. The, only, the first time I had Chinese was when we went over to Baltimore, where my father had come from, and we went to Jimmy Woo's in Baltimore, which was my father's favorite place. And it rapidly became one of my favorite places. But the only Chinese, that was the only time I'd had Chinese food in my life until I got to Cambridge. And then all the New York guys were talking about, well, let's get Chinese food tonight. And they were all used to taking the takeout Chinese food. Uh, and I'd never heard of such a thing because there was no place to get it around here. So that was, that was my first real introduction to Chinese food. But we'd go over to Jimmy Woo's uh, maybe a couple times a year. If we went to a ball game or something, we'd go to Jimmy Woo's after the game. My father, my father convinced me to apply there. He said, why not find out whether you can get in? Uh, you know, I had good grades and stuff. I was interested in a wide variety of things, and I think my father saw that as uh, a step up in the world. He was in the first generation of his family that went to college. Uh, his, his father was a railroad engineer, 
And before that, the family was mainly farmers down in Western Virginia. So my, my father was the first, my father and his uh, brothers and sisters were the first professionals in the family. One of his brothers was an Episcopal priest. Another one was a physician, a surgeon actually. And uh, most of his sisters also got college educations. So. No. Uh, both my parents had graduated, uh, several of my uncles and aunts, but I sort of thought I wanted to get further away from home. So I applied to uh, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, uh, Washington Lee, and Haverford. Haverford, which is in suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, nice school. It's, a, it's about the same quality. It's, it's, in the, it's one of uh, Washington College's competitors in sports, in fact. Uh, things like lacrosse, it, Quaker school, I think, originally, sort of like Swarthmore. Was there any Jewish people in town? There were a couple. Uh, one, one a couple years behind me in high school, uh, Fred Bonnet, whose parents owned one of the shoe stores in town. Uh, and the, the Foxes owned one of the department stores in town, which was basically where uh, Dunkin' Donuts is now. That building burned down uh, a number of years ago, but the Foxes was uh, Jewish-owned. There were probably a couple of others, although uh, I, I can't think of who they were. And they, Freddie Bonnet was in, our, in school with, so we knew him, and you know we, we played ball with him. We, we did stuff the same way as any other kid. The, nothing ever came up that anybody, uh, anybody said or that made any particular uh, impression on us that he was somehow different, and, but we just we sort of knew as a fact that he was a Jewish. I mean, nobody. The foxes. Uh, any relation to um, Joe Fox? Do you I don't know. I do not know. So, uh, were you around when the Freedom Riders came? I was in college at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, were, was, was Freedom Riders any part of the discussion going on in the college and where you were? Uh, there was some discussion ab about the Freedom Riders who went down to the Deep South. We knew about them. We knew because they were, they were undergoing a pretty uh, rigorous uh, ex experience and the kind of begin getting their bus set on fire and beat up by the racists and so forth. And we, we knew a lot about them. That, that, that was very much in the, in the newspaper. We, t we talked a lot about that and what they were trying to do. And, uh, you know, that was... And, and that was something, you know, well, as I said, when, the first time I'd ever seen a white-only sign was when I went down to Virginia, so I really had no personal experience of the kind of really, uh, really hostile racial attitudes that the you know, far deep south. I mean, I mean, sure, I knew people that, that used the N-word. You know, polite people said colored people. Uh, you know, if you, were, if, you, if you were talking about black people, the polite term was colored people back then. And if you were being sort of academic about it, you'd say Negro. Uh, so, so um, in regard to the college atmosphere, I'm, I'm still kind of curious mm -hmm. whether there was a sense among the students that something was going on in the country that was going to lead to big changes. Um, and if there was any interest or any um, you know, energy or activity which was helping the students to understand that this was a student you know, yeah. movement and that they could get involved in this change. Yeah, there was a fair amount of it. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, there was a fair amount of, uh, there was a lot of awareness of it. And 
Some of the students, uh, I think particularly the ones from New York, uh, <coughs> became very active in it. Uh, I was a little bit more passive myself. My, although, uh, one of the things that happened, this, go back a step. When I was growing up here, one of the things that was, that existed then, that doesn't exist to anything like the same extent now, uh, my two favorite radio stations when I was a kid growing up were WANN and WSID, which were both black owned and operated. And that's where I heard Little Richard, Fats Domino, Miles Davis, uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Uh, when I was in, starting when I was about 12 years old, I was hearing these guys on the radio. And the disc jockeys, who had a whole different atmosphere, a whole different energy from the disc jockeys on the top 40 stations I was listening to. Were you the famous DJ from WANN? Oh, the famous DJ from WANN was Hoppy Adams. Hoppy Adams. Yeah. And, uh, and the famous DJ from uh, WSID was eventually Fat Daddy, but the guy who was the big one when I was growing up was Kelson Fisher. And they played the music that basically changed my life. Uh, black music changed my life. So did you get to see any of them when they came? I got to see a couple of them when they came. Uh, the one I, I will always regret not having seen was Little Richard when he played the Armory. Uh, oh. That was probably 1958. One of my friends, Albert Nicholson, who was the son of Bill Nicholson, the baseball player. Swish. Yeah, it was Swish's son. Well, nobody called him Swish, it was Bill around here. I never heard him called Swish until about 10 years ago. Uh, and Albert Nicholson was, you know, well, he was the son of somebody famous, so he could do anything he wanted and go anywhere he wanted. So, so he, went to, he went to concerts at the Uptown Club. He went out to the, uh, went out to the Armory and saw Little Richard there, and he came back, and I, I was just drooling to hear his description of how great the concert was. Why didn't you go? Uh, my parents probably would have vetoed it if I'd even raised the idea. I think I knew that I wasn't going to be allowed to go to something there. Well, tell us about the experience, you know, your first encounter with soul music, you know, and how you felt it. Well, I, I probably heard stuff on the radio when I was a little kid growing up. I remember, I remember one of the first songs I remember that was clearly from a black artist was Open the Door, Richard, which was a big, big hit in like 1947, 1948. Uh, and it was covered by a lot of different people, but the guy that had the hit record, I think, was Jack McVeigh, who was a tenor sax player. And it was, it was just a funny uh, song. Uh, a guy's knocking on the door trying to get Richard, who's inside, to open it up. And the, the subtext is that Richard's in bed with somebody, uh, which is why he's not opening the door. Uh, it was, and I, it, it was, open the door, Richard. <laughs> it was a repeated rich riff. And, it, and I liked it. My parents sort of frowned on it because I think they got the subtext and I didn't. <laughs> yeah, <it was> <laughs> playful stuff. Right? Yeah, playful stuff. And, and then uh, used to watch TV shows like Ed Sullivan and Louis Armstrong would come on. And I, I was instantly captured by just his whole persona. And the, the music, here was somebody who, in a way I think I realized he was much freer than a lot of the music I'd been exposed to growing up. Uh, he would just do and say anything. He, he would wisecrack with the other guys in the band. He didn't take it seriously. He, he, he was, well, he did take it seriously, as you, as you 
learn when you start really learning what he's doing musically. But he would, he would play this just incredibly challenging stuff if you, if you know anything about the way the music's put together. But at the same time, uh, he would crack jokes with his sideman. He'd, he'd mug, he'd, uh, he'd entertain. And I, just, I loved it. And in fact, one of the things, one of the things that opened up for me when I got to Boston was the ability to go see a lot of these people. I saw Louis play live in uh, Symphony Hall in Boston, for example, and, that, and the, the same group that I'd seen on TV and so forth and so on. That was a great experience. That will change your life, huh? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, I I went to see some of the other musicians that I just only heard on record or on the radio. Uh, I went to see. Miles Davis a few times. I saw Thelonious Monk about five times. He he's the guy that changed my life really. Monk Monk really taught me something about uh, how music can be put together in a way that nobody else ever did. And another one that exchanged that changed my life. The first first time I went to a jazz club in Boston, Thanksgiving, 1959. It was it was actually Thanksgiving Day. We went to a place called Storyville, which was one of the great jazz clubs in Boston. Ornette Coleman was playing there, and uh, I don't know if you know Ornette's music. He's uh, he's one of the developers of free jazz, and it was it was the great Ornette Coleman group. It was Ornette Coleman, Don Cherry, Charlie Hayden on bass, and Billy Higgins on drums. Uh, and my roommate and I, he was from New Jersey, uh, a guy named Doug Eaton, uh, who looked like he was 15 years old. And he had a hard time getting in some of the clubs sometimes. We got about 50 feet from the place. We could hear the band, the highest energy level of anything I'd ever heard. And these guys were just, just wailing away. And I said, this is, this is something. And you know, to this day, I sometimes get up in the morning with an Ornette Coleman tune going through my head. Uh, you know, there's a couple of his tunes that just, uh, just resonated with me, and I, eventually I turned my son on to this music. My son is now a professional jazz musician in, in Florida. And he every once in a while, he, he sends me Ornette Coleman stuff. Uh, what were some of the songs you remember? Uh, well, the, the, the songs I remember from when I was growing up were things uh, by uh, Little Richard. Uh, my favorite song when I was a kid growing up was probably Slippin' in the Slide. And, which is a fast blues uh, with great, great sax work. By, I later found out by Lee Allen, who was one of the great New Orleans musicians. I loved Fats Domino. Uh, Going to the River was probably my favorite song of his, which had, uh, Lee Allen used to play on some of Fats Domino's stuff, but he also had a guy named Herb Hardesty, who was a little bit mellower tenor sax player. Herb would take the mellow solos, Lee Allen would take the fast solos. Um, the Coasters were one of my favorite groups. Uh, and they, they would do funny, funny uh, group songs with voices going back and forth. One guy coming in, commenting on something somebody else had said. Uh, Ray Charles. Uh, I think I first heard Ray Charles. Uh, I first heard Ray Charles on the radio when I was living in the house on Queen Street. I, I don't know what it was I had. It might have been chicken pox. I was sick, lying in bed. And they had the radio on just to keep me entertained. And on came this voice. It was Ray Charles singing Lonely Avenue, I think. And it, this, this voice just reached out and grabbed me. 
Well, my room has got two windows. And just, it, wow. I said, what is that? And, I, and that's what sort of made me look for more of that. This is 53. Some of them were listening to the same stuff I was. We listened to a lot of rockabilly. Uh, that, you know, Elvis, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Buddy Holly, guys like that. I like that stuff too. Chuck Berry, we liked a lot. But there were also kids listening to the top 40 and who would, who would listen to Pat Boone's version of Little Richard Tunes and think it was better somehow. What was the story on him, Pat Boone? Pat Boone, uh, he was a, a real clean cut white guy uh, who dressed the way your parents wanted you to dress and uh, who made sort of respectable versions of these really raucous tunes that, uh, that you could put on and your parents wouldn't think of something wrong with it. <laughs> I remember playing, I remember playing uh, we, our music teacher in eighth grade, we played a Little Richard record for him and his response was, that's not music. Oh, and we say, oh. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm married. Uh, I'm on my second marriage, actually. I've been married to Jane for about 25 years, and we met through publishing. I was working for uh, the Walden Books Company at the time, writing a newsletter on science fiction. She was working for, uh, well, she was teaching school, but she was writing for a, an industry newsletter that covered science fiction, taking photographs and writing reports for it. And we met at a party. And she was the first person I'd met whose last name was Jewel, to whom I wasn't related. And so I, I struck up a conversation, tried to figure out whether she was a cousin or something. It turned out that we probably, if we are, it's about 300 years ago on the other side of the Atlantic, because her grandfather came over in 1910, and my, my family, my mother's maiden name was Jewel, uh, had been here since the early 1700s at least. So if we're related, it's back over there. Uh, my first wife was a music teacher, and she's the one uh, who's, uh, with whom I have my son, who's the professional musician in Florida. She was his teacher? Um, she was a music teacher? She was a music teacher in school, although uh, Dan learned from both of us. I remember teaching him his first bar chords on guitar. Uh, he, he started off as a cello player, believe it or not, and he was a pretty good cello player. You know, he could play all the... Bach preludes and stuff like that on cello. And, uh, but one day, I'd come home from work. I was working at a music store at the time. And I came home with a Ramones album. And I put on the Ramones, and I was listening to Surfing Bird, which remains one of my favorite Ramones tunes to this day. And Dan came walking in and said, what is that? And I said, here, take a look at it. I showed him the record album. And he listened some more and said, and said, I bet I could play that. <laughs> I said, yeah, I bet you could. So I went and about a couple weeks later, I, I got him a kid-size electric bass. It was about a half-size electric bass and taught him a couple of things on that and pretty soon he was playing bass, which he still does professionally sometimes. He plays guitar and bass. And a little bit later, I showed him bar chords on guitar and he, uh, he can now play rings around about 95% of the guitar players on the planet. So going, I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. going back a little, what yeah. do you do at the college? 
after college, I, after college, I went to grad school in English. I was an English major in college. I went to grad school, uh, got a master's at Johns Hopkins, and then went on to Indiana University for my PhD program. That's where I met my first wife, Laura. Uh, I was going to be in English. Uh, I never finished the dissertation. I was going to, my dissertation was going to be on Keats in the Middle Ages. Uh, Keats was my favorite writer back then. Well, Keats and Mark Twain, but I, uh, Mark Twain I didn't consider, consider somebody you studied. Mark Twain was just somebody you read. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in a house with a complete collection of Mark Twain. That was my grandfather's. And that was, that was another significant influence on me. You still have it? Yeah, all except one volume. I'm missing the second volume of Following the Equator. I don't know where the damn thing went. I keep trying to find it somewhere, uh, used bookstores and stuff like that. But one of these days I'll find that. That's one of my minor lifelong quests. Did you stay in Indiana? Or did you uh, I, I, when I graduated, well, when I passed my, uh, I passed my written exams for the PhD and was working on the thesis, and I said, okay, it's time to get a job, because. Uh, uh, I, I, in theory, I could finish the PhD anywhere and come back, you know, finish the dissertation anywhere, come back, take the orals and get the degree. So uh, we went to Philadelphia where I'd gotten a job at Temple University. Uh, my wife got a job in the public schools of Philadelphia. Taught there for a couple of years. It became obvious at a certain point, uh, right around the time that my father died actually, that I wasn't going to finish the PhD. That I blocked on it. And so Temple, coming to the same realization, uh, did not grant me tenure. <laughs> and uh, so I went off and did a number of other jobs, including working at a music store for about eight years. Uh, at that point, I said, uh, I realized, A, that I was blocked in promotion because everybody else that worked there that was making more money than I did had the same last name, and it wasn't heck. Uh, so I said, okay, it's time to do something else. And I, I took the summer off, went on a trip with my son who was singing in a boys' choir that was doing a national tour, and they needed another driver slash chaperone. So I went and saw the country for the first time. Uh, really saw the West for the first time. Came back and started looking for jobs, and I got a job. Uh, I, I decided I wanted to do something with my education again. So I got a job with the Walden Books chain, which eventually was absorbed by Borders and eventually went belly up. Uh, writing a science fiction newsletter, selling science fiction books to uh, readers. And the job involved doing stuff like interviewing all my favorite writers. I've been reading science fiction since I was 12 years old. and. Uh, Accidentally came across an Edgar Rice Burroughs book, and that again, that was another thing that changed my life, discovering what, science fiction. What was the book? The Mastermind of Mars. Uh, and Edgar Rice Burroughs was a strange critter, but he, but the book, the book opened up my mind on a, on the fact that you could question things that I'd never questioned before. Uh, one of the things about it, it has. It has a lot of very broad, but at the time I'd never seen anything like it, religious satire. And it's so, I was sort of at the age where you're starting to ask questions and stuff anyhow. I'd been brought up in the Episcopal Church, and uh, you know, my parents took it pretty seriously. 
And at the first time I started to say, well, you know, maybe some of it, maybe we don't have all the answers. And, you know, for a while I was asking my, I was asking my parents questions that I'm sure they had a lot of trouble with, you know. Well, you know, you think it might be possible that Muslims know what they're talking about? We're not the only ones that have the right answers. And uh, they were sort of, uh, they would give me sort of road answers. And I w wasn't entirely satisfied. I think Edgar Rice Burroughs started me on that road to ask those kinds of questions. So all of a sudden, here I am uh, writing a newsletter. I can call up Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury and ask them questions. I said, okay. Tell us about those <laughs> conversations. <laughs> oh, some of them were great. Uh, no, uh, one of the things I would do, I would, I would write up the, I would send them a transcript of the interview to go through and just make sure that I hadn't misquoted them or, uh, you know, that I'd gotten any facts wrong. And um, Asimov called me back and said, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to, you don't, you can clean up my grammar. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, this is somebody that spoke in complete sentences, you know, who still wanted to <laughs> make sure that you, uh, and there was something, uh, something that Heinlein had said, which was, uh, the, the, the editor that gave me Heinlein's phone number said, you must burn this after you call him, this cannot get out to the world, that, you know, the, that Robert Heinlein, because every idiot in the country will be calling him, this was after he'd written Stranger in a Strange Land, which became kind of a hippie Bible. Uh, and so, you know, everybody who'd had a little bit too much dope wanted to call up Robert Heinlein and talk to him about free sex and all this stuff. Uh, so, and, and Heinlein wrote me back and, you know, he, he, he corrected his grammar on his stuff. So I, I sort of got the idea, okay, I don't have to quote these guys exactly as they say in the interview. Uh, Heinlein only gave a very few interviews in his life, so I was very lucky to actually have gotten an interview with him. And he talked about stuff. He talked about being in the Navy, uh, which is what he did after he, uh, you know, he, he, was a, he was a graduate of the Naval Academy and was a Naval officer for a few years before he, was, uh, he got tuberculosis and was, got, received a medical discharge. And he talked about, I asked him the book that I was interviewing about, he'd written about computers. And I said, what was the first time, what was your first experience with computers? Expecting to say something about uh, having, you know, known somebody at IBM and worked on a mainframe. So in the Navy in the 1920s, we had mechanical computers that you used to program the artillery, to aim the artillery. He said, that was fun. That was sort of like playing an organ because you had this keyboard you worked at and it would program. And, and he, he talked about how he used to walk around New York City in the 1920s uh, and just go everywhere. Uh, and I think I saw a side of him. They didn't talk about it to too many other people. That, that was fun. Uh, so, so, you know, that, that, was, that was in some ways the neatest job I ever had. And it opened up my, the door to me becoming a writer because I got to know a lot of writers, a lot of publishers. Uh, eventually, when Walden Books decided it wanted to do the newspaper with people in-house rather than a freelancer like me, I ended up getting a job as an editor at Ace Science Fiction which was one of the big science fiction publishers. They had published about half the books I read when I was a kid. Uh, I used to go over to Stam's Drugstore. They had a spinner rack, metal spinner rack of paperback books, and that's where we got our books. Uh, and there were about five of us that would be in there the day that we knew the guy that came delivering the new books each month. Uh, and we had to fight each other to get the new science fiction books. Uh, 
Was that a, was that a uh, lunch counter in there? Instead? Yeah, they had a lunch counter in there, and they took it out when they desegregated because if they left it, if they left it in, they would have had to serve everybody. That was the agreement. So they they adjusted to desegregation by taking up the. It was, it was a soda fountain, not a soda fountain. And they had tables where you could sit and you get a sandwich or a sundae or whatever, and they took out the tables. That was their response to uh, the to the desegregation era. And a lot of the black people around that were old enough still remember that as one of the things that, uh, okay, well, they, they desegregated, sort of. It was fun. It was a good. It was a good job. I worked with people that were uh, very, uh, you know, the, the, the ones that are still around are still my friends. In fact, uh, and you know, uh, science fiction people generally have a very uh, open and very uh, anything goes attitude toward the world. Uh, our, our our editorial conferences would get into very bizarre territory sometimes because we'd be talking about we'd get we'd gotten a book proposal from somebody, and it would be you know, well, it, it would be something really off the wall, and we'd start talking about well, what can do what can we do with this? What would we do on the cover of this? And people would come up with really uh, bizarre ideas as to how you'd illustrate some of these stories or whether we could do anything with the cover, and we'd. All sorts of irreverent comments about people that were household names to all the science fiction fans out there in the world. Well, you know, Herb hasn't turned a book in on time in the last four books he's had, so we can't expect this one to come in on time. Uh, and Herb was uh, five years late on one of his books. Uh, <laughs> so we read that you wrote books. How yeah. did that transition happen? That happened. Went to. Uh, our, our editor-in-chief said, we're having a blue sky session on mysteries. What does that mean? It means, what, what, what are your dreams? What are the things you'd really like to see? Uh, come on in with ideas about mystery series. We can get people to write. Uh, so, so I said, okay, that sounds like a fun thing to think up. Like, it was a lot more fun than reading unsolicited manuscripts, which is what I was planning to do that afternoon. So I sat down so I think about, okay, what kinds of mystery series are successful? What kinds of things are people doing that, uh, you know, that need, uh, you know, that we can jump on the bandwagon? What kinds of things aren't people doing that there might be a call for? I said, okay, um, historical mysteries were right about then becoming popular. Uh, one of the big selling series was uh, was about an Egyptian archaeologist, Amelia Peabody, and uh, it was set in the Victorian era, and it, it was getting a lot of uh, a lot of sales. So we said, okay, hi historical is big. Historical historical mysteries with real life people are starting to come in. Somebody was writing a series with uh, Charles Dickens as a as a detective. I said, okay, that sounds like a that. That sounds like something we could do. Uh, one thing that wasn't being done as much at that point were the sort of great detective mysteries, the, where the detective solves things by intellect rather than going out and beating people up until somebody confesses. I uh, said, so 
and something like Sherlock Holmes, you know, set in the, set in the Sherlock Holmes era. So I'm thinking, okay, uh, historical figure set in the Sherlock Holmes period, which would be the late 19th century. Uh, somebody that is an intellect rather than a physical person. And the other thing I thought of, nobody's doing an American historical figure. Things suddenly came together. Mark Twain, detective. And right there, there, there there's, the, there's the three word pitch on the book, Mark Twain, detective. And I, I read all this stuff by the time I was 17 or 18 years old because I had that series of books sitting around the house and I climbed up and started reading them and said, this guy's funny, he tells good stories, he's got, he's somebody I, I, I enjoyed reading, so I'd read them all, by the, including the ones nobody likes by the time I was about 18. So, and I, Mark Twain would have been, he struck me, he would be a good detective, first of all, because he was a world traveler. He went all sorts of different places, and that's something that people seem to like in mysteries, is traveling around to different places. He could talk to people from all levels of society, from millionaires down to uh, the guys shoveling coal into a steamship. Uh, he, he was a great, great one for the one-liners, and people like detectives that are wisecrackers. Uh, so, okay, Mark Twain detective. And within about five minutes, I had the titles for four books, all of which were twists on Mark Twain's titles. Death on the Mississippi, A Connecticut Yankee in Criminal Court, uh, The Prince and the Prosecutor, uh, The Guilty Abroad. And these are all twists on Mark Twain's titles turned into mystery titles. They said, okay, well, uh, what kind of plots would each of these titles be? And I figured Death on the Mississippi had to be the first, and you had to take a boat trip down the Mississippi, and uh, something, somebody would get murdered, and he'd dissolve it. And the others, I came up with similar little plots. So I went in the meeting, and everybody, you know, everybody said their things. Well, what do you got, Pete? And I said, well, Mark Twain, detective. And I, I hand, handed out the stuff I said and told them the stuff. And they said, that's great. Go find somebody to write it. I actually tried a little bit to find somebody to write it. Uh, I found a couple people, and nobody had the voice quite right. Nobody could convince me that this was the way to do it. So I said, okay, I'm going to sit on this. And the editorial assistant at ACE knew I was doing it. She said, Pete, if you ever write those books, you got to send them to me. You know, I'll kill you if you don't. And I believed it coming from her. Uh, so a couple years later, uh, the company was hitting some rough times. They laid off a couple of editors, one of them being me. So I said, okay, I'm going to write those books. So I wrote the first one. I wrote a proposal. I wrote... Uh, about three chapters of the first one, sent it to Laura and Laura Ann Gilman is her name. She went on to become a fairly successful writer herself eventually. Uh, and they bought it. My agent talked them up from the first offer to a little bit better offer. And so I wrote six books in the Mark Twain mystery series, uh, which are historical mysteries. They're fun. They're, there's some, one dead body at least in each book. Uh, and they're set all over the world, you know, Italy, England, uh, Mississippi. And the last one's set in, the last one's called Tom's Lawyer, which is a title my brother came up with, uh, which is set in Montana. Has Theodore Roosevelt as a detective, as, a, as one of the side characters in there. I, I pulled in some other historical figures. The second one's set in New Orleans. Uh, follows up my 
fascination with early jazz, which has, it has a couple of early New Orleans jazz musicians as characters in it. And uh, I was about three books into the series when my former editor at Ace came to me and said, we've got a series being written by uh, Bob Asprin, who was a very uh, successful science fiction writer, and he's burned out on it. And it's the book, they're, they're selling like crazy and Bob's burned out. We need somebody to collaborate with Bob, meaning write the books. Uh, and uh, we think your voice of your narrator in the Mark Twain series would be good uh, for for the guy that's the sort of narrator of these books, would you like to do it? And I thought about it and said, yeah. So I ended up writing four science fiction books, uh, nominally in collaboration with Bob Aspen, although I wrote every word of every one of them. Uh, and Bob collected the big royalty check and I collected a slightly smaller royalty check. And that was cool, it was money I wasn't gonna get for anything else. Were you a, a, a ghostwriter? No, my name was on the books. They're, they're by Robert Aspen and Peter Heck. So. And it was comic military science fiction, which is a very small subgenre. Uh, there are about two other people that write that, including uh, the guy I modeled myself on when I started writing that particular series, a guy named Harry Harrison, whose great comic military book was Build a Galactic Hero, about the young country guy that gets drafted into the Space Legion and uh, his experiences in the Space Legion. Uh, so I sort of took that as my model for writing comic military science fiction. I got to know Harry over the years, and he was, he was a fun character, one of, the, one of my writer friends. Uh, so that's how I became a writer. And then years back, the fiction contracts dried up for whatever series of reasons, and I needed to get a job, and that's how I ended up at the Kent County News. I was, when I was in publishing, I was living in, living in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, for those who know Brooklyn, uh, it was about two blocks from the Newkirk stop on the D train. For those who don't know Brooklyn, ignore that. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm a couple Grand stops Army down Plaza. further. Yeah, sure, yeah, I know Grand Army Plaza. Yeah, we used to go up there. You could walk to Grand Army Plaza from where I was if you were ambitious and had a little bit of time. Yeah. I came back to Chestertown in 1996, which coincidentally is right about the time my first mystery was published. Uh, my mom, who at that point was 93 years old, uh, had demonstrated that she needed somebody to remember stuff for her and drive her places and so forth and so on. And uh, in theory, I could write anywhere. I could have written you know, any place where I've got a power source and a level surface to set my computer on. So I came back here and I, you know, Jane and I moved down and took care of mom until she passed away at age 102. Uh, and the last few years were sort of rough, you know, because she'd gotten into some pretty severe Alzheimer's results. And so it was, it got pretty rough toward the end, but you know, I'm glad I did it because coming back here is one of the best things I ever did. Well, one of the things I noticed when I came after about a year after I came back is we were seeing more in the way of music, plays, uh, lecture series, art than we'd done in eight years in New York. Not because there was more, but because it's so much more accessible. Living in Brooklyn and working in the city, you had you, you faced this decision if you wanted to go something in the evening. 
okay, do you go back to Brooklyn and eat and then come in, or do you stay in the city and eat and go back out on the subway at midnight or whenever? Uh, the cost was preposterous. If you, if you went back to Brooklyn and drove back in, you had to park the car. Because uh, we didn't want to go back on the subway at midnight, because A, the subway might not get there at midnight. And there was constant work on the, on the subway system. There was constant work on uh, everything. And so it, and one time we went to an off-off-Broadway place to see one of our friends who was singing, uh, singing there. And we, we drove in, we parked at a place, we ate, a, we ate at an inexpensive restaurant, uh, we went to the place, we paid the cover charge, we paid, uh, paid for a couple of drinks apiece, and by the time we got back home, we'd spent $120. I said, you know, that's a lot of money to spend for that experience. And we sort of stopped doing that anywhere near as much, even though we still had friends that were involved in stuff. We'd, we'd really sort of had to pick and choose because it would cost so much to do anything in New York. Down here, we could walk down, and there's music in the park for free on Saturday nights during the summer. We could walk down to uh, what was then uh, Andy's, the, the bar that is now Washington Tavern, where they had basically world-class music coming in. You could get in the door for 10 or 15 bucks, sit there all night and listen. Nobody came around hassling you to buy another drink. Uh, you could sit as close to the band as I am to you and you know, watch, watch the guitar player's fingers up close steal his chords if you were so inclined. Uh, and it was a great casual atmosphere, plus the, the college concert series, the college movie series, which we'd go to fairly frequently, uh, lecture series. Uh, I found myself in a band down here after not too long, and you know, we got to, got to play with some interesting local musicians. I, that alone made it a, just a whole different experience. Uh, you, know, and I, I, you know, I miss New York. I'd go back if things worked out that I had, some, had a place to live up there and a good, good way to keep myself uh, fed and clothed and so forth and so on. But coming back here was a good thing. And there's also a kind of interesting dynamic moving back to some place that you're from after you've been away for a long time. You know, there, one of the things about growing up in Chestertown is that there's uh, two categories of people, the from here and the come here. And that's a big distinction that you run across all the time. Uh, my mother was a from here. Her family had been from Kent County for probably four generations before she was born. My father came over here from Baltimore, went to Washington College, moved back permanently probably about 1936. Uh, he was never an insider. He was always, he was always from somewhere else. He was always the, the, a Baltimore boy. You know, the, the great, probably apocryphal story they tell about Kent County is a local couple, uh, wife was pregnant, they went on vacation, the child was born in Virginia. They came back, she stayed here the rest of her life, the, the, the child grew up here, lived to age 90, died. The obituary in the Kent County News says, Virginia woman dies here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably apocryphal, but th there are people that actually sort of think that way.
I've got a little bit of the best of both worlds because I'm from here. I grew up here. I went to Chestertown High School. A lot of the guys I went to school with are still here. People remember my father. People remember my mother. She taught him in school. People, you know, I, I was talking to one of the local judges the other night. And he was talking about how my father taught him his catechism at Emanuel Church uh, and how my mother taught him Latin in high school. So uh, I've got that entree. People remember my family. But at the same time, I've been away. I've, I've tasted some of the rest of the world. I've been to New York City. I've been to, you know, I've been to Europe. I've been to Japan. I've been to uh, places. You know, there are a fair number of people that I went to high school with whose only time away from home was when they were in the Army after, right after high school. And they got out of the Army and came back here and haven't gone anywhere since and don't want to. To them, a big, big excursion is to go over to Dover. So, you know, and there are people here who basically live that way and they think any place else is scary. Uh, we went to New York as my senior trip in, in high school. The whole class went to New York and I, I loved it. I reveled in it. I bought, my, I bought my first Charlie Parker record at a music store in New York and uh, walked around, looked at everything, walked around the village. You know, and, and went with the class up the Empire State Building and all the other stuff that you do when you're a tourist in New York for the first time. And some of them were scared to death. It was the scariest place they'd ever been, and they don't ever want to go back. So, you know, it's... So coming back here from having been somewhere else gives me a kind of dual perspective. And it's funny, you walk, I walk around and I see something and I say, that used to be so-and-so. Or uh, just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I uh, drove a couple of the couple of musicians from the National Music Festival here from the airport and brought them back here and took them to the place they're staying and I walked in and said oh this used to be Al Townsend's house Al Townsend was a kid I grew up with uh, he lived around the corner from me and uh, and the person who owned the house said who's Al Townsend I said never, never mind it's ancient history but you know that, that kind of perspective on the things, things you're walking around seeing or remembering yeah, this used to be so-and-so. Remember the time we did so-and-so? I go down to the riverfront, for example, and I'm at the foot of High Street, there used to be a big barn-like building that I think was a wharf That's where they used to unload when the merchant ships would come in here back in the early part of the 20th century. We'd go out, we'd go on that and throw stones out in the river from the, from the wharf. I used to skip stones into the river, and I, I, I walk any place in, any place in the town I see and remember stuff from when I was eight years old, 16 years old, or even, you know, even as late as uh, my early 20s. I'd come back here, you know, on vacations and stuff and just walk around and see this or that. So I remember, I remember seeing my grandfather playing fiddle with a band in the park. Uh, and now my wife runs music in the park. So, I, you know, there are a lot of things that are sort of complete circles here. And it's... So there, there's, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, that kind of pleasure in coming back here. And yeah, I, I, I like it when I'm in a big city. I like it when I'm in some place new and exciting. But there's, there are certain kinds of pleasures that I get here that I, I couldn't get anywhere else. Are you talking about not river and big segregation here in Chestertown, or is it still alive and well? Huh. We've gotten over a lot of it. Uh, but... 
some of it has been handled in ways that were probably not ideal. There used to be a really vibrant black community on Cannon Street and on the, uh, on the part of Queen Street west of Cannon Street. And that section of town, the way it was handled was gentrification. Basically, the people who owned the houses, the landlords let the houses fall into disrepair. People would move out or they'd, and then they'd fix the house up and sell it to somebody for a premium price. So that what a lot of the houses along Cannon Street, along Water Street, along Queen Street that used to be black owned, black, black occupied, are now upscale white houses. And it's, it has, we've lost something that gave the community a, a character and a flavor that, that in, a, it, in a lot of ways I miss. Uh, it used to be, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, in the hot summer days, we'd, we'd walk out on Cannon Street and the place would be alive with people just in the street, on the, sitting on their porches talking. There'd be a guy selling what we called snowballs, which were what they call Italian ices in the city. Uh, they were flavored, shaved ice, and we'd, we'd get it from somebody and walk around and just laugh and talk, and people would be playing music you know, on the radio or something. You know, this is nostalgia for a past that probably wasn't as uh, probably wasn't as nice for everybody living in it as, as it seemed like to me as an eight-year-old kid. But uh, that community has been pushed out, and they live in places now like um, Woods Edge and Quaker Neck, the various places outside of town. They've been moved up. Some of them have moved been moved up to this area along Flatland Road, uh, and. One of my friends, uh, one of my friends now since I moved back, Milford Murray, uh, somebody might find interesting interview if you haven't already. Okay. Uh, talks about he, he was a young, young black kid who was a waiter at a party being given by one of the judges locally, Judge Collins, who was a, who was a legendary figure locally. He was one of my father's mentors in a way. He was a waiter at a party, and he remembers the then mayor of Chestertown and several other significant figures in the local community talking at that party. And the mayor said, the only way that we're going to solve some of our problems is to move all the black people out of town. And Milford was carrying a tray of drinks at the time. And he, he let it go and just dropped it on the floor and walked out and said, you know, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't be uh, sitting here and, and involved with these people anymore. I, I, and the guy who was his boss and the guy who'd hired him for the thing, was a, an older black guy who was a caterer who, uh, took, you know, who does parties, tried to persuade him, no, no, you, you can't give that up. No, I'm, I'm done, I'm done. He went away and joined the army. He was in the army for a number of years and then worked as a truck driver for many years. I, interstate truck driver and has since moved back. He has family here. He's now driving a truck for the post office, I believe. Uh, but he, he tells that story and uh, that, you know, okay, well, they solved their problem uh, and they created something that has problems of its own. So, you know, the overt segregation 
which was never that overt, uh, has gone away. But it's, it's, it's been eliminated in a way that there should have been some better ways to do to, uh, to solve the problem as they saw it. You know, they, they saw it as a, the problem in their eyes was that there were black people downtown. And now there aren't black people downtown. Well, gee, you solved that problem, I guess. But you impoverished the community in a way that uh, maybe somebody should have looked into some alternatives. And one of the things, you know, one of the things that we talk about sometimes in the diversity group, which I've been a member uh, since I was getting pos possibly sort of trying to carry on some of my father's uh, work and trying to see ways to get the community back together, is that you don't see a lot of black people downtown in the businesses. You don't see them downtown for things like First Friday at the music in the park stuff anywhere near as much. Uh, although we expect that to change on this coming Saturday because we've got an all gospel program. Uh, we sort of realize the music festival is having its big final concert that same night. So let's do something the music festival isn't doing. Um, let's get to a slightly different part of the population. Uh, but you know, it's it's one of the things that, you know, having lived someplace like Brooklyn, where I'd, I'd walk down the street and, you know, I'd go past the hardware store that's owned by a Sikh, and you see him out front in a wonderful white suit and his white turban and his white beard, and just, a, just wow, look at that guy, he's neat. Or the, the pizza place where the guy behind the counter spoke eight languages, or at least well enough to uh, sell you a pizza in any of them. And the, the fire plug out front was painted the color of the Italian flag, the three colors of the Italian flag. Uh, or uh, a little bit further up there for a while until the cops decided they didn't really like that neighborhood. There used to be a, a little tunnel outside the subway shop and you go by and there'd be some West Indian guys shooting craps there. And the cops decided they didn't like it, but that, that to me was a, a neat bit of, uh, neat bit of neighborhood color. Uh, they said at one point that uh, in our school district in Brooklyn, uh, the parents spoke eighty-five different languages, and you know, it's a, it's a United Nations in in that part of Brooklyn. Coming from someplace like that back here, is you know. It's, it's a very different experience, and I, I think missing that kind of uh, the lively, diverse neighborhood is part of why I've sort of explored a little bit more, make, tried to make friends with a wider number of people, become friends with people that I would not have been friends with before I left. Uh, because you know, living somewhere else made me really aware of what I hadn't been aware of, what I'd missed, what I hadn't known when I was a kid growing up here. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank, yeah. you, Thank so you so much. It was a great interview. I have a consent form for you to, find, to sign. Okay. Wrapping up everything in our little legal bow. Mm. <laughs> this okay. page says it. Yeah. We're going to deposit it in the archives. Mm -hmm. You did this of your own free will. Yep. Sam didn't hold a gun to your head or anything mm -hmm. like that. Because <laughs> of all of us, she would be the one to do it. <laughs>
Thank you so, so very much. Thanks.